courtroom is the only place in America where elephants might be able to fly. The emergency physician is supposed to give acute episodic care, right. not ongoing care. The greatest fiction in America is the cause of death on autopsies. We're driven to find causality. Pain out of proportion is a phrase that scares me. The jury wanted to spank them for that kind of behavior. You don't have to love your patient. You have to care for your patient. Right. Light grandma up. Make her glow in the dark. That's just a mistake. The Romans gave us this phrase, post hoc, if say procter hoc. What the heck is he talking about? Hello and welcome, Rick Bucata, and sitting across from me on a large telephone book is Dr. Greg Henry. Hi, Rick. Good to see you again. We're doing with you now the May issue of our Risk Management Monthly from... New Orleans. New Orleans, where we are doing the Emergency Medical Abstracts course. This is probably our 15th year here. This is the week of the Jazz Fest. A lot of people come, look forward to it each year, and so that's what we're doing. And just like last year, we have the same terrific guest that we had last year on the audio with us, Dr. Jim Ducharme. One of the reasons that Jim's phone's ringing is because he's from Canada where they have the SARS kind of thing. And there's something going on about some kind of swine flu or something like that that he's getting a lot of calls on because you have some facilities up there that you're Yes, I'm I'm responsible for a bunch of clinics. And just like in the States, we're at level five today for pandemic preparation. Well, you know, when this tape actually lands, everybody may be dead. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in two weeks from now, we don't yeah, know that. But his idea to block swine flu was to eat more ham sandwiches. And I see that's not going to go. Rick. You mean killing all the pigs won't Kill, work, Greg? Won't work. Will not work. So anyway, we're here at the Marriott Hotel. And I do want to basically introduce Jim in terms of his background to make you think that it's not just somebody who's walking by and said, listen. So first of all, Jim has a variety of distinctions. Number one. He was the first resident at Los Angeles County USC Medical Center, my alma mater, to be fired twice by Dr. Gail Anderson. <laughs> and then I think that is a distinction. Nobody else has been fired twice. I don't know whether anybody's been fired once, no less twice. I, know, well, I don't know whether I should feel proud or embarrassed. And if Gail's listening, look how well your boy's done now. Yes, because I want to read just a little bit about the litany of the accomplishments that Jim has. This is going to take about 20 minutes. Yeah. You're the founder, or one of the founders, of the Quebec Association of Emergency Physicians, the International Federation of Emergency Physicians. You were on the, or are you still on the clinical staff at McGill and Dalhousie Universities? You were the chairman of a very large emergency department in St. John, New Brunswick. You saw a bunch of people there. Like, 75,000 visits. Yes, that's yeah. a large emergency department for Canada. You've been president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. You're currently the editor-in-chief of CGEM, the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. That's right. You've published extensively on pain management. In fact, you have a book now called Pain Management and Sedation, Emergency Department Management, which you are a co-author of. And you are currently the Vice President for Medical Services of MediMerge in Ontario, where you have a series of pain clinics. Pain clinics, infusion clinics, and, medical clinics. And ERs that you staff yep. as well. It said that you staff their nurses as well. Is that true? We do staffing for nurses in penal institutions, mental health institutions. So for a guy who got fired twice, I think that you've done fairly well, fairly well. Maybe it's considered. the key to success. If he's staffing yeah. penile institutions, does that mean you're hiring urologists too? I have no idea. Go ahead. All right, so let's get down to business here. Greg, we wanted to do a couple of cases. We're behind on our cases. 
Now, all of these are closed claims, and I don't think we're going to mention any names of any of you out there who have sinned egregiously. We're not mentioning any doctors who have sinned egregiously, but I think it's perfectly all right for us to say that these are closed cases, and these are actual cases. None of these are made up. And the first one I brought just because Jim was going to be with us, and this is, again, a recently closed claim case. Man oversedated with Versed for CT scans. Problems not noted until he suffers pulmonary and cardiac arrest while in the CT scan. And this was a $6 million settlement. Man, oh man. Now let's talk about this. A 40-year-old went to an emergency room in a major California hospital academic hospital, as a matter of fact, and this is in June of 2005. He was diagnosed with kidney failure. The decision was made to admit him. There were no rooms available at that time, so he had to wait in the emergency department, and they were doing his workup, which was going to include a CT scan of his abdomen, which they had decided was going to be done at some point in time. He received several doses of Versed simply because he was becoming somewhat agitated. They gave him enough Versed so he was not agitated on his way to the CT scanner, unfortunately, while he was there. Well, the CT tech noted the fact that the patient had become somnolent and now was shaking, jerking, probably having an anoxic seizure of some kind, and the patient went on to a very bad outcome, which includes death. So, Jim, what happened here? You're the sedation guy. You wrote a book on it. Well, you know, Greg, it sounds like it's one of the common pitfalls we see with midazolam, in addition to some monitoring aspects. Let's talk about the monitoring first. We know that people who go to radiology, it's in the past decades, it's always been called the black hole of any medical department. And there seems to be, when you take people away from an area that has lots of staff and lots of physicians and nurses, we take them to an area that's staffed by people who have no expertise to take care of you, and yet we monitor you less. And in dark rooms. In a dark room. Yes. So we think they're very unstable, they need to be CT, yet we put them in an environment where there's less monitoring, less available staff, and they're hidden from view to a large extent. But I think if you get back to midazolam, one of the problems, of course, is, is with any benzodiazepine, some of the agitation at the onset could have been due to disinhibition from the midazolam. And we know the treatment for disinhibition is more midazolam. But where most physicians get into trouble with this medication is the failure to recognize the inherent delay to maximal onset of effect. We always think of midazolam as a medication that gets us sedated within a minute to a minute and a half. But in actual fact, the maximum time to onset of sedation is anywhere between five and seven minutes. So if you start titrating doses in one or two minute intervals, which is what most physicians and nurses do, you're now getting further and further behind the maximum peak. And probably by the time this patient had gotten several doses, he was probably eight to 10 minutes away from getting maximal sedation. Hence, in the CT room, probably inadequate monitoring, inadequate numbers of staff, poorly seen because he was in an area of radiation. And the worst possible outcome here is not death, it's brain damage. And so he was resuscitated at a certain point in time, and unfortunately, he will not move on to have any major job at this point in time and will be custodial for the rest of his life. It's a sad commentary that we didn't in some way monitor or follow him through this process. Although I understand that what you've mentioned, the red flag to me in this case is that a patient who is becoming agitated requires sedation. Why is that patient becoming agitated? Is that patient hypoxic? They didn't say he was in pain. So I'm concerned about 
sedating somebody. You don't know the reason why the cause of agitation, and then you send them over to the black hole. You know, that's a good point, Rick, because things I've always taught is, and the nurses consistently resist, is the person who comes in agitated, has an altered mental status. And until I know what their blood sugar is, what their O2 sat is, what their blood pressure is, I don't want to sedate them. And you can imagine, you can get some very agitated, even violent patients that the nurses don't want to take vital signs on, don't want to check for their blood sugar until you sedate them. And yet we've all experienced people extremely agitated whose blood sugars were in their boots, whose blood pressure was 60 systolic. And as soon as you got some fluid in them, they woke up. The best case of mental status change I ever saw was in a marathon where this gentleman crossed the finish line, was incoherent, and I couldn't get his blood pressure as he collapsed afterwards. I was the physician on for the marathon. And he was, no pulse, but he was talking a mile a minute. Just pressured speech, couldn't stop talking. And for every liter of fluid I poured into his body, his speech slowed down. And by the time he got to four liters, his wife said, this is my husband. And he was now speaking in a normal fashion. He had a blood pressure. So we have to be very careful. I agree with you that agitation is altered mental status and you shouldn't be sedating until you know that all the important vital signs are. I mean, once you start sedating, that oxygen saturation has got to be followed very carefully. I always remember early on in my career when the EMTs were not as well-trained as they are now, but they came in with a young guy and they were holding a paper bag over his face because they said, obvious hyperventilation syndrome. And, you know, it's funny, you can hyperventilate when you do have a 60% pneumothorax on one side. That is why you're hyperventilating. That is why you're hyperventilating. There are respiratory reasons to hyperventilate. It doesn't have to be your personality. And I think your warning to us is a very good one, which is if we're going to sedate somebody, at least have some idea of why we're doing it, what the underlying causes are. And there's also this risk-benefit analysis kind of thing that if you do feel that you need to do it, the reason that you're doing it needs to be really pretty substantial, not because it's going to be easier for the nurses to care for the person in that in the process you're going to piss them. In all fairness, though, the sedation techniques have really changed over the years. My practice, we do sedate people, but I think we just have to be aware of the downsides and be prepared to intubate them or bag them if we need to. This is sending them off into the black hole, as you commented upon, without somebody to monitor them. That is the problem in this case. Here's another. All righty. So let's try this one. This, all of you will like out there in Radio Land, simply because it's happened to every one of us. Man not informed of mass seen on chest x-ray during evaluation for chest pain in the emergency department. Now, when you and I get a chest film on a patient, you and I are directed. We're looking for specific things. Chest pain. 50-year-old man, we're looking. You say, is that a widened mediastinum? Yes or no. Is there a pneumothorax? Yes or no. Is there an infiltrate? Something like that. Well, it just so happens that they came up with a diagnosis of a mass that appeared on the final report from the x-ray department. The emergency doctor didn't have that final report, but it had to go somewhere. Now, it went off into nothingness, I guess. It got stored someplace, as all final reports do, was never followed up. And three years later, he's not a well man. And, of course, what they've got now is that mass has now expanded. Are they able to treat him at this point? Should the emergency department have picked it up? And more importantly, should the hospital have a system that before that x-ray report is filed, 
it's got to go to somebody to be checked off on. This is a positive x-ray report. But you know, Greg, it's a conundrum. I take a look at the number of preliminary reports, even final reports I get back from diagnostic imaging, where they're talking about possible this or possible that correlate with clinical findings or even better, should follow up with CT. (laughs) And if I've counted the number of CTs I would have had to have done because diagnostic imaging made the suggestion that you might better be able to assess this patient. From your legal point of view, where does the onus change from the emergency physician saying, well, I got to arrange this CT to saying, you know what? I'm discharging this patient for a minor condition and the CT should be arranged diagnostic imaging with the primary care physician. I think the black hole here is whenever there's a positive report come back, it's got to go to somebody. What it can't go is memo to the file, which gets put away. It really goes down to when they leave, do we assign a physician to them, someone who has to follow up with what's going on? Do we say to the patient, this is a preliminary reading. You make it a call. Something else may have to be done. And reading chest films or any other film is an art form. One doctor may call it, another one may not. And you're right, they probably overcall a few things. Better we call a few patients back when those positives come down or that we have to pass something on to the family doc. Where I'm working right now, most people do have family doctors of some kind. We can make a phone call and say, look, it has nothing to do with why they're here today, but you need to be aware of this. And for heaven's sake, please note that on the chart. I want to know if you spoke to Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones about following up on that number. Now, I talked to a physician who's here at the conference who's from Texas, and she said that maybe 20% of her patients have a primary care physician, and that 80% of her patients doesn't. You know what? The emergency physician is supposed to give acute episodic care, right. not ongoing care. So with 80% of your patients not having a primary care physician, how does the emergency physician then say, well, it's all this on my shoulders? Do they become then responsible for everyone's follow-up if they don't have a primary care physician? Because something like this, this chest x-ray, if I have 10 patients with abnormal findings that might need follow-up by a primary care physician, but they don't have one, is that automatically a default? Well, I'm the one that ordered the test, therefore I'm responsible? Well, whether you're going to be the one who ultimately takes the blame, the real question is this, Jim, am I going to be a part of the discussion? And the problem is, you are going to be a part of these discussions. Your name is going to appear with everyone else's. Will radiology's name appear on that chart? It might. The hospital itself, it might. Do you have a mechanism in place to notify people of a variance in the x-ray reading. If you've told them that night and noted on the chart, you need to follow up with this and here's the name of somebody to see, I think you're off the hook. It's when that reading comes back to the blind emergency department, basically, what do you do with it? That's why I think there needs to be some sort of follow-up mechanism, some form you fill out that said, we made phone calls, we tried to get in touch with the patient, you can't call them, send them a registered letter or do something. But for God's sake, don't have a potentially serious diagnosis sitting out there. I've seen somebody called a cavitary lesion of tuberculosis. And somebody was in with a trauma to the chest. And of course, the emergency doc looked at it and said, yeah, I don't see any bad trauma. Lungs are inflated. Not a problem. Well, now you're trying to look for a guy who's got active pulmonary disease who's probably spreading it to the community 
one problem in this country, probably not as much in Canada, is there's going to be maybe 8%, 10%, 12% of our patients who the materials they gave us for follow-up are wrong. If you at least went after them with what they gave you for follow-up, I think that goes a long way in defending you or helping to relieve some of this responsibility. Well, before we move on to the next case, my spin on this is that there are two x-ray discrepancy classifications. One that relates to the reason that the patient is there. You missed a pneumonia, you missed something like that, where it's clear that the ball is in your court and it relates to this visit. And then the second one is the incidental finding on the x-ray that may represent some kind of tumor or something to that effect, which is totally unrelated to the visit. Now, you can do this in two ways. One of them is you could say, I've made a best effort to call the patient, notify the patient of this problem, and I've been very candid with them. Mr. So-and-so, you've got a density on your x-ray or you have a shadow on your x-ray, something that a layman might understand, and the radiologist is concerned that it may be a tumor. Now, that's going to scare the... Correct. That's going to scare them. Yes, it is. But... That is what we're talking about here. There's no hiding behind euphemisms. We're concerned that this may be something. So it it puts the onus on the patient. I've told you in no uncertain terms that this may be a tumor. And I know that 80% of the community doesn't have a doctor, but I can't be all things to all people. I've told you, I've told you the worst potential here. And the burden that is now upon you, whether you go to a clinic, whether you save up the money to go to a doctor, I don't think I can do much more than that. Well, you're right. The problem is it's never documented that well on the charts that I see that become lawsuits. Rick, if you did exactly what you explained, there wouldn't be any cases. Because most people in the public believe if we tell you, patient, and you don't follow up, that's your fault. If we don't explain it to you and don't invite you into care, that's our fault. Right. And that's really where this will come down. And 12 reasonable people are going to have to decide, did you make a reasonable effort to involve them in the system? Well, let me ask you a question. You have this shadow on the chest x-ray. Is it your policy or your practice to call the family doctor and the patient or just call the family doctor? Because once you just call the family doctor, you've thrown that hot potato over to that doctor, and hopefully you will have talked to that doctor directly rather than to the secretary who's answering the phone over there who doesn't convey the message and nobody says, I never knew kind of thing. But once you convey that to the physician, is there any obligation on your part, you think, to talk to the patient? My list, number one, and and where I'm working right now, we have this follow-up sheet on any variants. We can check off multiple boxes. I've called both on occasions. It would seem the prudent thing to do. But the first thing I do is I try and call the patient. The person who's really involved, who's got the most at stake... And who is, in fact, your patient. ...is the patient. We've had a doctor-patient relationship. If I can't get a hold of that patient, I will then call their doctor. If we can't find their doctor or they don't have a doctor on our staff, we can go ahead and send them a registered letter. Mm-hmm. Here's what I don't want. I don't want that finding in the chart with no action taken. You see, if you've made a reasonable effort, people will respect that. If you've made no reasonable effort, they ain't happy campers. This isn't just true with x-rays. What about the blood culture that comes back in two days? you got to do something You shouldn't have it. done it in the first place well, is the answer to that. But what <laughs> you're saying, though, Greg, is that you can't leave this to the physician. The group has to develop a system. Exactly. So the result comes back, and things are set in place 
You say you have a form or you have a system. You know, we often, I've seen hospitals where there's a nurse practitioner specifically there to follow up results, to contact the patient, and the system is in place to make sure there are no holes. I worked in a hospital in New Brunswick where the hospital took a stance because of this failure to report tests. And they basically said, if you're not responsible, going to follow up for the results, you can't order the test. And that because the hospital didn't want to be implicated because now the hospital has the results. They know about it, but there's nobody to take care of the patient. Can I do one last point here? One of the things I think, and I've mentioned this before in prior recordings, you should not, when you call them and there's no answer, wrong number, you should not assume that the patient just gave you the wrong number. There's a thing called 411. What a reasonable person would do when you were trying to get a hold of somebody is to look them up in the phone book or something to that effect. And, but we often say, ah, oh, they gave me a bum phone number because we think they're trying to hide. They don't want to give us their true identification, things like that. Yeah, we've looked at that. And there's been a couple of studies done that say when they look at on the chart, our people at the front desk transpose numbers. Exactly. And it's not uncommon. You can pull the book, look them up in the community. There's the number. It's not 2201. It's 222 this or that. Right. And it's a simple clerical error. But simple clerical errors, we've got to do something about. And I think patients would, and a jury would think that that's a reasonable thing to do. You just can't shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, can't find them. Right. See, there's no problem when the culture comes back negative. When the x-ray result agrees with what you said, it's the variance. And what do you do with the variant? Want another case? Yeah, you, You'll love this yeah. one. Again, this is the kind of problem we can get into and not know it. And understand a jury can make a decision on anything it wants. Improper credentialing of emergency room physician blamed for delay in diagnosing heart attack. Man claims delay led to blood clots causing a stroke, yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of money changed hands on this case, and here's the bottom line. The physician who's staffing the emergency department wasn't trained as an emergency doc. He was trained as an internist, which is still common throughout the country, or a family doc, something like that. Just so happens, he claimed to be board certified. We found out that he'd flunked his boards 11 times, and the hospital had gone ahead and given him privileges and had not followed up on this. So now we've got a guy who's flunked his boards 11 times. Can you imagine the presentation of that at trial? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let's count this out together. Once not having enough knowledge to pass the board, twice going through that 11 times in front of this jury. It inflamed the jury. This is a $3 million decision. Quite frankly, crap science. The hospital, I would think, would have been liable in that for the credentialing process being lax. Exactly. It was not the emergency doc, the chief of the department, who went down on this one because he submitted the materials. It's the hospital and somebody in that credentialing department who didn't follow up. This decision is a decision against the hospital, not against physician. And it's on a malfeasance of credentialing, not so much on the technicalities of the medicine or the actual science of the case. Because probably when you read this case, when you get into it, what he did was probably no different than a lot of us would do. The point is the hospital is sitting there with egg on its face and the jury wanted to spank them for that kind of behavior. Because what they view is proper is that the hospital's role is to protect the public from incompetent physicians. But you know, Greg, it raises an interesting point. In Canada, you're allowed to sit, especially exam, three times. 
after which you must get additional training before you can be reconsidered. You would think that there might be some liability here with the American Specialty Board for Internal Medicine. After how many times that you fail, should you be told not only can you not sit the exam again, but shouldn't be considered board eligible? Well, you've raised an interesting problem here. And I don't know in this case whether he'd gone back and done some other testing or whether he'd taken further work. All we know is that at the time of trial, it was brought out that he had sat 11 times for the board. What brings up the point about board eligibility and a lot of the residents, when they graduate, they are board eligible, but they are certainly not board certified. And there's this period of time by which you are allowed to take these exams. And obviously, I don't know what it is for internal medicine, but I agree with you. There must be some period of time where you can no longer say you are board eligible. I got one here, Greg. You want me to do this one? Yeah. This is from the New York Supreme Court. An eight-month-old male underwent a lumbar puncture and during the procedure suffered a cardiac arrest that resulted in severe brain damage, blindness, and quadriplegia. The worst of the worst. An intern was performing the test, and when they discovered the child lifeless, they said the intern really did not resuscitate the child appropriately. This is a $27 million jury verdict here. One of the issues was that the person who was holding the child was overly aggressive in that process, bent the child's neck forward. You know, you make it into a little ball kind of thing, and then the process basically suffocated the child. And I don't know if this is the same case, but I independently... I'm aware of a case where the uh, lumbar puncture was being done. You know, you do all this draping business. You get the big EMT to put the kid into a little ball. And when they took the drapes off, the kid was dead as well. You can envision how scary that is. Child doesn't seem to be struggling anymore. That's because the kid's been suffocated. Now, obviously, this is an egregious, egregious case. But the point of this is you have to really be take control of the whole procedure, not just you're putting the needle in, but how your staff is assisting you. And you need to be aware that you can cause these kids to become hypoxic. In fact, I believe we have a paper in the abstracts that talk about O2 saturations going down right. when kids are being held for a lumbar puncture. Yeah, we have more than one paper. We have more on than one subject. paper. In yeah. fact, there's been some recommendations. If you're going to take an infant and put them in a curved position, not only should they be on supplemental oxygen, that you should be having an oxygen saturation probe on them while you're doing the procedure. Well, I think one of the real issues in this case is it's an intern doing the procedure. The last time I checked, you need to be there as the attending when they're doing a procedure that you're going to bill for under Medicare, Medicaid, all those various rules. A house officer is still a physician in training, and you as the attending have an obligation to make sure that that's done correctly. Although one of the points I think that we should make is that Your statement, Jim, about what O2 saturations, I don't think that we want to indicate that that is the standard of care by any stretch of the imagination. Certainly, it's a good idea. And the cases that we know about and the literature that suggests that this is a reasonable thing to do, this Uh, is an issue. Obviously, if you're overdraping, to do a lumbar puncture, you don't need much of a drape. Particularly on a small kid. Yeah, but kid. It's, they come in a kid thing. Is it's three, an adult-sized blue drape, which is appropriate <laughs> color, don't you think? <laughs> That's right, exactly. The blue matches your skin. All right, tone. there's so just a word for the wise there. Yeah. Be aware of this. Want another quickly here? This is a failure to promptly administer antibiotics despite a stat order. This has to do with all of these things out there that, oh, by the time they come to the front door to when they get their antibiotics with their pneumonia. These are all these meningococcemia cases. Well, 
All I can tell you is this man suffers a cardiac arrest and brain death and eventually death. This, by the way, is a Utah case. And this is a $950,000 loss. And it had to do not so much with the physicians because they knew when the physician had written to start the antibiotics. Now, did it really make that much difference? That's very hard to say. But what the jury was angry about is the fact that you had a time delay here. Doctor had written for the antibiotics, but it's one of these things. Well, he's going upstairs. Well, they can give him the antibiotic upstairs. Let me just make a little plea to my colleagues here. Anything that needs to be done within the first three hours, if you were admitting him, just do it in the emergency department because things can happen. There's a magic place out there that no one knows about where people go for several hours before anything happens quote-unquote, upstairs, or in an inpatient unit. It's like where all the cabs go in New York when it rains. I have no idea where they go, but they're gone. I bet they have a huge garage they all hide in. Well, they don't want to rust. They They, don't want to rust. They don't want to rust. But this case was exactly on that point. When was the order written? When were the antibiotics given? And, of course, they're banging the drum in this case that, oh, four hours, and you violated everything everybody's rules about the giving of this drug and that's what the jury heard is when you're not in compliance with rules like this they'll imagine anything they want as a causal relationship well you know the joint commission i don't know if you know this jim has really been leaning on doctors in the states to time and date their orders and the hospitals are having a terrible terrible time it's not only the orders it's the progress notes everything that they put into that chart they want it timed and dated and you can envision that timing and dating is one of the issues that probably precipitated this case. Really? I mean, somebody did time when they wrote the order for the antibiotics, and there was this big gaposis in there. So it basically provides some fodder to go after the nurses, or you waited too long, or the nurses waited too long. I'm not saying anything here is scientifically valid. There you go. Please don't. But it doesn't have to be in the courtroom. The courtroom is its own world. Well, A lawyer once told me, he said, Greg... Do elephants fly? I said, well, I don't think so. And he says, have you seen all elephants? He said, the courtroom is the only place in America where elephants might be able to fly. And they put all these things together and say, how can they be right? They didn't follow what the guidelines are of the Joint Commission. There's a hospital that I'm very, very, very familiar with, actually very familiar with, (laughs) that settled a case for $50,000 when the issue was... When were the petechiae noted and when were the antibiotics given? Mm-hmm. And the whole case settled on the nurse noted it, when did the doctor write it? And although you can go through all of the literature and Dave Talens as your expert, the issue will be in the jury, and we said it was probably worth $50,000, to say, is a group of 12 people going to say, well, doesn't it make sense, doctor, the sooner the better? Yep. It's a hard thing to, to refute, even though... By the time particular are seen, most people would acknowledge the die is cast. But what is a jury going to say of reasonable people saying, sooner the better, makes sense to me, write the check. All right. The last case I want to bring up, and then we'll move on to another subject, is failure to properly treat and stabilize man with suicidal ideations. This is what happened. A man was arrested after being violent in the emergency department and was sent off to jail. But what happened was the gentleman came into a relatively small hospital and after an alleged dose of Xanax, you know, I want to end it all, so I'm going to take Xanax. Now, that wouldn't have been my choice if I wanted to end it all, but he did. So as part of the process of giving him charcoal, he fought 
the physicians, the physician and the nurses. They called the police. The police arrested him and took him to jail. The physician thinking that he's either going to be returned or they would do something as far as his psychiatric condition as well. No, two days later he made bail, went home, put a gun in his mouth, and blew his brains out. So where they're going in this case is after the emergency physician for failure to secure or to write down for the police what should be done with this man once he leaves their institution. You can't take the Pontius Pilate approach. Just wash your hands of it. Now that you've turned him over to law enforcement, are you going to give them some direction, something for the jail nurse, something for anybody who's going to follow up? Why don't you say when he is going to be discharged, why don't you bring him back here for our reexamination? None of that happened, and that's why this became a case. You know, it's interesting. We had a case at our hospital just last week of a, and this is a very strange, very strange of a man witnessing another person getting a traffic ticket. And this man was an older man and had bypass surgery, and he was watching. And because there's this concern about police brutality and those kinds of things, so he's just watching. And the policeman is saying, what are you doing here, sir? You're interfering with our taking care of this matter here. And he said, I'm watching, and I'm allowed to watch, and you can't do anything about it. And he didn't touch them or anything like that, but he was just maybe four or five or six feet away from this transaction going on, and he would not leave. So they said, you're interfering with police action, and unless you leave, we're going to arrest you. He said, no, I'm staying here. Watch. I don't know what's wrong with this guy. Bottom line is he is subdued by the police, thrown down to the ground, and is brought into the hospital because as soon as they did that, he claimed he had chest pain. The fact of the matter is, the guy had umpteen bypasses, had the bona fide thing, and we got into this little dilemma. So I worked this guy up for chest pain, and the guys were going to then take him to jail. And I said, you know, I don't really feel comfortable with you taking this guy to jail. And what they did, which was, I thought, pretty cool, is they just wrote him a ticket right there for disturbing the peace or something like that so that it did not get in the way of the medical care of this patient. They still had their piece of flesh. But in your case, they took him away. And now what's going to happen? And you can see what happened in your case. It was bad. It was bad. And I told them I felt really reluctant to send this person to their jail. I said, well, we'll take him down to the county jail ward. And it was going to make a big project out of something that should have never happened in the first place. But you can see by when you get into this law thing here that they feel obligated to do something, take him down, book him, which takes him out of your sphere of influence, which this person obviously should danger to himself, danger to others, potentially, etc. The Constitution of the United States was not written for the speech and the behavior you agree with. It was written for that behavior which you don't agree with, but still needs protecting in the mature liberal society. And that's the problem with this sort of case. Did we agree with the behavior? Probably not. Was the jail the best place for this guy? Well, it wasn't bad for two days, but then you're going to spring him. But you know, Greg, I think about this case and someone who's come in and it may have been a gesture at the time, it may have been a call for help. But once you've digested a substance, no one can properly assess your mental status or your affect and how depressed you are until that substance has left your body. You know, I practiced for many years and every time we had someone who came in and took a bunch of pills or drank a bunch of alcohol, what would the psychiatrist's answer be? We'll see them once they're clear. Do a blood alcohol and a drug screen, and we'll see them when they're clear. Because what they know is 90% of those people, when they're clear, (laughs) they're really quite fine. That's right. (laughs) And so this gentleman had the medication on board, so he didn't have a proper psychiatric assessment. 
but he had committed an act that was a warning sign. Somebody had to assess this person. And if he had stayed in the emergency department and waited for the Xanax to wear off, that's exactly what would have happened. Somehow there was a failure to do what everyone would have done if the patient had stayed in the emergency department. There was a failure to complete that because he was transferred away from the hospital. So I guess the message here is don't let the law and what they perceive their necessity to do something legally in terms of booking or arresting or something to that effect get in the way of decent medical care. And people who have organic brain syndromes as a result of some intoxicant or drug or alcohol or whatever else it is. Yep. All right. Well, those are some of the fascinating cases for the month. These are all, by the way, closed cases and published cases. And I think that our listeners ought to hear what's really happening out there. Now, I know you don't like all the facts of these cases. They just happened. Well, before you depress me anymore, let's move on to Jim, because I think we should take advantage of his time here, and he's got some issues that he wanted to bring up on his particular area of expertise and interest, pain management. I'm all ears. Well, Rick, you know, you'd asked me if I could bring up some areas of pain management that might be of particular concern for medical legal reasons, and and it came to mind fairly quickly that there were four areas that have consistently been alarm signs, red flags, if you will. And I think the one we always should start with is that famous pain out of proportion to physical findings. You know, it turns out that the body has been very well made for risk of tissue. And it turns out that the signal that creates the greatest amount of pain is that of lack of oxygen or ischemia to tissue. And that means the tissue isn't yet dead. It just means it lacks oxygen and the body's trying to warn you that something's going desperately wrong. So the pain is the most intense. And, you know, you can think of conditions where there's been very intense pain with ischemia, such as sickle cell disease, testicular torsion, ischemic gut, necrotizing fasciitis, which are exquisitely painful. They may have to have almost nothing on physical exam. And the reason the body is like that is because in response to such a severe painful stimulus to the spinal cord, the dorsal horns, the body on the afferent fibers actually releases two products to vasodilate, nitric oxide and CGRP, in effort to save the tissue. You know, we had a case of necrotizing fasciitis when I was in New Brunswick where a very astute triage nurse saw a lady come in with shoulder pain and wrote in the nursing triage note, patient comes in with shoulder pain out of proportion to what I find on exam. Now, the problem with that, Jim, is as soon as you say that in most places, they say, oh, so they're a crock. They, they no, don't no, pull no, we, the whole thing it, together. It's called a symptom magnifier. A symptom magnifier. Yeah. You know, and I would tell you that when I see a nurse or a physician write that down in the chart, all the alarms start going off in my mind. Pain out of proportion is a phrase that scares me. I think that's something that everyone should be aware of. The second point that I came up with and I thought was that the famous patient with abdominal pain, you know, we've always talked for the last, what, 15 years, Rick, about our inability to provide analgesia to people with abdominal pain, that we're being inhumane, that we don't treat them. And in fact, we've gone a long way to taking care of that. I think we've published 94 papers in the database. In fact, there ought to be a rule. You can't publish yeah, any more of those done. papers. We're done. We got it. Yeah, because the bottom line is it doesn't hide anything. But Jim, what is your take on this? My take is, is that, you know, just as it's bad to investigate someone and not give them something for their pain, it is equally bad to give them something for their pain and fail to complete the workup. I think the number one abdominal pain I see that bothers me is the elderly patient who comes in with abdominal pain and gets attributed to constipation. Yeah, uh, constipation is a word 
that, quite frankly, I don't think emergency doctors should write on charts. Let's just assume it does not exist because we worry a lot about the RADs from CT scans, that sort of thing. And with an eight-year-old, I'm the big advocate we don't CT them. When you're 80 and we don't know what that pain is, light grandma up. Make her glow in the dark. That's right. You know, they talk about statistics once you're over 65, 70, that 85% of people who are that age, who present with abdominal pain, need an admission to the hospital. What do you mean the 65 business? <laughs> yeah, right. Be oh, sorry. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I'm going to be on the dole. I'm going to get my Medicare card in three months, and you little suckers are going to be paying for my health care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right. So well, not you, know, you, Jim. Not me. Yeah, no. yeah. So we're going to look at this, and, you know, someone comes in with abdominal pain, and it's very tempting to give them an antispasmodic. Never mind an opiate or ketorolac or whatever, and their pain goes away and they're looking okay, I'll send you home. That's just a mistake. Can I add to that? Sure. I just gave a lecture this morning about headaches and the relief of pain associated with the use of analgesics with headaches, and does that kind of tell you you don't have a serious cause? And the answer to that is obvious if you're talking about narcotics. But one of the things that was kind of interesting about that is a cluster of studies that looked at people's response to triptans made the headache better, and yet they still had carbon monoxide poisoning and a, Subarachnoid lit- hemorrhages. And a litany of bad things. <laughs> and triptans are not analgesics in terms of they physiologically are going to constrict those painfully dilated blood vessels. So you would say, well, geez, if I gave triptans, it's almost like a diagnostic test of migraine. And that's just not the case. Right. In fact, it's actually been very well shown that, that almost all headaches come from stimulation of the trigeminal neurovascular bundle. And that when you get a stimulus through substance P or from other substances, you get a natural vasodilatation of the vessels around the trigeminal nerve, leaking fluid, stimulating the arachidonic acid pathway. So in fact, whether it be prochloroperazine, metoclopramide, the tryptans, because it's a common end of a pathway for headache, you can take care of the pain by physiologically affecting the trigeminal neurovascular bundle, but you haven't made a diagnosis of anything. And that comes back to the old saw, Greg, You can't be diagnostic and therapeutic at the same time. Exactly right. This is like giving someone the famous GI cocktail and saying, well, it can't be cardiac. They're feeling better now. That's right. No, the streets are littered with the bodies of those doctors, and headache is the ultimate one. We can blow anybody's headache away. I don't care whether there's a gallon of blood inside their head. We can make you feel better. And if you're going to sit there and use that as the diagnostic test... now. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't take away people's pain, but you use the same criteria you would for everybody else to decide if you're going to work that headache up for something else. Although this was a great example where you could be led down the garden path because you think you have physiologically given a substance that will remove this pain, that will not mask true pathology, and when in fact it can because of the eloquent explanation that you gave about arachidonic acid and what nerve bundle or some neurovascular thing in your head. I don't know why that sounds like a good explanation, but the bottom line is, is don't be misled. Rick, you have to remember as well that there's a remarkable placebo effect for any medication. That's another 40%. 40%. And I'll never forget this lady who came in early in my career, an acute inferior MI, and she said, you know, doctor, I had this terrible pain in my chest. I took some warm water add a little cloud of milk, drank that water, and my pain was gone, doctor. So that's why I didn't come in. They brought me in because I passed out four hours later. Placebo effect is there, and the greater the motivation for a placebo to work, the greater the response there is, 
And that's why that famous you cannot associate diagnostic intervention with a therapeutic intervention is so very important and I think a real key point to take home. If you take a look at the next one, I think it's a pain pattern that tricks us and it locks us in immediately into a diagnosis we fail to explore in detail. We've learned that, for example, that a woman will examine her breasts on a monthly basis and she'll find a lump. And she'll remember that three days ago she banged her breast against something. And therefore that lump is because of the trauma she had. Well, we're no different than that woman. A person who comes in and says, I fell three days ago or I was lifting some logs at my cabin. And the next day I had this pain in the side of my chest. Our brains stop working. We've identified a paradigm that makes sense to us and we stop thinking. Rather than going through all the questions just to make sure everything's covered, we often just say, this makes sense. Let me stop here. And I think it's important to realize if you're going to do an assessment, you do a proper assessment. Well, we're driven to find causality. And we're so anxious to connect dots that may not really be dots. And the patients help us because they're looking for a causality as well. And they'll say something like, well, it must have been when I... What do you mean it must have been? The Romans gave us this phrase, post hoc, ipse procter hoc. After such, therefore, because of such. One of the cases of MI I saw was a guy came into the emergency department, 45, 50-year-old fat white guy who was up at his cottage pulling the boat on the trailer. So now he's kind of rubbing his chest saying, I've strained my chest. Why? Well, I was pulling that boat trailer and, you know, we'd gotten about halfway up the hill and, you know, I knew I'd pulled on it too hard. The emergency doc is willing to take that as the example. Now, as I'm sitting here, there were other things on the chart which were troubling. The diaphoresis wasn't good. The fact that when he moved the arm, there was no pain. If it's going to be musculoskeletal, show me some musculoskeletal on the examination. It would have been better had he said, I have no idea why I have this pain. Exactly. And to lead you down this path of a supposed etiology. Yeah, but we all get sucked into this. We do. And as soon as you start to say, oh, I've made eight different visits to the GI doctor. They've scoped me. He says I've got the worst inflamed stomach. I mean, it's just awful. I'm on this blocker and that blocker. Doctor, I've still got the same pain again today. And you say, well, they've been worked up. No, they haven't. Because you go to a specific specialty. That's what they work up is their specialty. And they really do get blinders for the big picture. But, you know, we even talk about chest pain patients who come in. And I remember watching cardiologists after cardiologists come up to a patient and say, so where's your pain? And they take their index finger and they push on the chest. That pain? Yeah, that's my pain. And therefore, it can't be cardiac. Right. Because it, I've made it. It doesn't matter that 7% of MIs have reproducible pain on palpation. Of course. I always love it when the second-year resident from the CCU comes down. And, of course, they're experts on pain, of course. They take that old person and they push on the chest to the point where they're going to break it. And as soon as they say, enough yield, they say, yeah, see, costochondritis. You guys in the emergency department, you overwork up all this stuff. You know, we just have to understand there's a huge overlap area there where we quite frankly don't understand. Well, you know, it's interesting because this may be a bit complicated, but, you know, there's this whole idea of myotomal referred pain. Right. And it's rather amazing. Someone who may have bursitis in their shoulder will often get pain in their shoulder. And when someone comes in with ischemia because they're used to having pain in their shoulder, when they get their ischemic pain, they feel pain in their shoulder. What's even scarier, if you take some lidocaine and you inject it in their shoulder while they're having ischemic chest pain, their pain goes away. 
because you've anesthetized the same myotomal referral pattern. And so it anesthetizes the other area of pain. And so now you've really locked yourself in a corner. You were sure it was musculoskeletal. You've now proven to yourself it's musculoskeletal. And the poor slob was having his ischemic chest pain. And it's because people don't understand and we don't grasp all the relationships of pain. So let me get to the last point. Well, before you move on, I do feel the necessity to translate that. For those of you in the United States, yeah, that's yeah. called musculoskeletal. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm glad you straightened that out, Rick, because we have people pulling books off the shelves looking for <laughs> what this. What the heck yeah. is he talking about? Yeah, it's like that's when great. you're in, in Britain the first time I spoke and I used the cervical spine. It was painful to everyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that cervix had a spine. Uh, yeah, that's right. You didn't know the cervix had a spine. So the last point is the famous chronic pain patient. Knox Todd and I have done some studies and shown that up to 20 to 25% of people who come in to the emergency department have chronic pain as the originator of their primary symptom that brings them to the emergency department. Up to 80% of people have pain as their primary symptom and up to 40% of those people have their pain coming from a chronic pain source. But the problem is, of course, is when any one of us pulls a chart up that has a chronic pain diagnosis, be it CRPS or fibromyalgia, the inner groan and the deep sigh occur. And we start thinking about, well, this isn't an emergency case. What are they doing here? And we tend to have a problem of overlooking a new pathology, attributing the chronic pain to the reason why they're there, and even worse, misunderstanding their chronic pain and so treating them poorly. You pick up clues from the chart that are going to block intelligent medical care. There's five or six things that if they appear, and of course there's usually more than one of them, what do you have? Well, I not only have terminal fibromyalgia, but I have irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, interstitial cystitis, chronic back pain, terrible migraine, headaches. You see any of those on the chart, or the killer is born in Sudbury and stayed there. What you've got is obvious psychopathology going on, and we've got to do something about it. I think what you need to do, what I've had to do in my career, is to step back and say, Greg, you're going in that room now. You've got to give them the same care you give everybody else. Now, are you going to be a little bit pushed one way or the other? You can't help it when you look at that chart and believe the nurses are. Because whenever you hear, she's back again, or look at what they've got, I hope you're not the candy man on this shift who's going to be giving away drugs and that sort of thing. The nurses almost put up a barrier for you that you have to get over to do the evaluation correctly. Now, I think most times we're not going to find something bad, but you're going to put yourself in a position where if you don't do it correctly each time, the same way, you're going to have a problem. And you mentioned barriers. I think one of the most important things we all have to remember is that we all have biases. We all have barriers. There are certain personalities we don't get along with. There are certain types of people we don't get along with. There are certain diseases that we recognize. We just don't want to like taking care of this type of disease. And it's okay to have biases because there's no human being who doesn't have them. Exactly. As long as you identify them. And so I know, for example, that people with clinging dependent personalities get under my skin. So as soon as someone comes in and within a minute I've identified that they have that type of personality, my brain clicks on and says, Jim, one of your biases is here. Yes. <laughs> I accept it. And now that I've recognized it, I can move it to the side and continue forward and assess the patient better. Failure to recognize your biases, your barriers, dooms you to making repetitive mistakes. Don't you agree, Greg? Well, there's something called the signal-to-noise ratio in seeing every patient. 
What are we getting as real meaty bits of information? And what is the chaff, the noise that sits around that? Because when you and I go to Grand Round, we present cases. We pick out the meat to present. And so it's easy. It's obvious. It's like when they put up the x-ray at Grand Rounds. You know there's pathology on it or they wouldn't be sticking it up. I think the tough part is to take that signal-to-noise ratio and yourself kind of say, okay, what are the positives that I have here that actually point toward a disease entity? And to be able to do that, I think, is a genuine skill. And early on in our careers, I think that we don't recognize our own blind spots on certain kinds of problems. And as we get a little older, hopefully, we say, you know, I better be a little more careful with this one. Because I know that that's not the kind of personality I really like to take care of. Anybody can take care of the great patient who you really like. And what was the line that was taught to me as a medical student? If they're really a wonderful human being, you really like them, it's cancer. And (laughs) that may be the case. But I think we need to play this along the board in emergency medicine that you're going to deal every day with people sent in who you would not necessarily want to take to dinner that night. You know what? That's fine. They didn't come to us for judgment. They came to us for care. Different problem. See, I was told in my residency, as I said my residency, we had a speaker come in who was not a physician, and it's a very true statement. He said right at the start, you don't have to love your patient. You have to care for your patient. Right. Different priorities. And I think that we all benefit from that. Well, you know what? You had mentioned back pain in nurses. I got a little thing I want to read here. Just to remind all of our listeners that you are more than welcome, and in fact, you are encouraged to go on to riskmanagementmonthly.com and take the evaluations, tell us what you think of the program. We very much like to see them, and I'm going to refer to one of them in a minute. But one of my concerns is that the person comes in with back pain, they've been there before, the nurses roll their eyes, and so it's clear the nurses are prejudiced in this case, and they in turn prejudice you. Because if you start taking this person seriously, they'd say, Doc, he was just here last week, you know, kind of thing. They will discredit your workup because they think this person is just kind of either a pain seeker, chronic pain patient, wants medication, those kinds of things. And you're saying, well, what's the temperature? Let me see him walk. Let me do an exam. Get him out of their clothes. Let's get their pants off. And they're saying, what are you, talking a nut? Because they've already decided. And you don't want to be viewed by the nurses as some kind of atypical doctor or not one of the boys kind of thing. And so they want you to agree that this person is not worthy and that they have nothing and they're just in another abuser. And so I think that that tends to prejudice us. When you know the nurses are kind of not into this case, it takes a little special effort on your part to get into it. You know, I found that especially true in the elderly patients because no offense, Rick, but once you get to a certain age and you lie down in the stretcher, they all start looking the same. Just like little babies, elderly people start looking the same. And I can't tell you how many times I've had a nurse say, Mrs. Jones here, oh, she was just here. She's here all the time. And then you get the emergency record, and she hasn't been here in two years. You realize in any other business, if they said she's here all the time, they'd be considered a good customer. That's right. And they get special treatment, not worse treatment. Well, come on. This is a great opportunity for your line about the recurrent visitors for back pain, pain seekers. Right, right. And the recurrent asthma patients are... 
Well, oxygen seekers. Uh, another, oxygen exactly abuser. another oxygen abuser <laughs> who's right. come in. Exactly. Right. Well, I wanted to read this note from one of the doctors who is a subscriber. He said, I recently had a case of a 20-year-old who had presented with back pain one week ago. He shows up again one week later at 5 o'clock in the morning, was seen by the physician's assistant. The patient complained of lower extremity weakness. I had heard the EMS report and by chance saw him being walked into the ED with the EMS people assisting him. The PA worked up the patient, but overlooked a number of factors like the low-grade fever, the fact that he was homeless, the risk of IV drug abuse, and then topped it off with a poor physical exam. Bottom line was he had a spinal epidural abscess, and thanks to listening to your tape, I was attuned to this kind of thing, and I picked it up because he was being led down the garden path kind of thing as well. Now, obviously, we're not disparaging PAs. It was just a setup. No, but you know what? Getting paid to do our work is real good. What's better is getting letters like that. There's somebody who listened and actually used it for the betterment of a patient. I don't know who wrote that in, but God love you, and keep listening, because obviously this is working for somebody here. That's good. So we're going to move to a new topic. I wanted to review with you a paper. It's called Unanticipated Death After Discharge Home from the Emergency Department. This was actually Laura Grisback, who is the Director of Risk Management for Beta Health Pro. Yes, we know her well. Who is one of the enlightened companies that in medical malpractice insurance companies who gets a subscription to risk management monthly for every one of its insured doctors. Mm. Thanks, Laura. This is a paper which somehow we did not include in the past, which I think we should have, because it came out in June 2007, which was the inaugural issue of Risk Management Monthly. It was indeed. So let me just summarize what these folks did here. This is from one university, University of New Mexico, which is the only hospital of any big consequence in New Mexico. It is the only level one trauma center for the entire state kind of thing. And run by our good friend, Dave Sklar. And actually, he and his colleagues wrote this paper. They reviewed 117 patients who died within seven days of being discharged from their hospital. They see 72,000 visits a year, and that was in 2005. This collection of patients was from 1994 to 2004 and represented a death rate of three deaths per 10,000 discharges. Three deaths per 10,000 discharges. I don't know if that's good or bad since we have no data in emergency medicine, but that's what they came up with within one week of being discharged. I think most people would say that makes you nervous when somebody dies within a week of being discharged. They went through the records to the extent that they were able, and they used a rather sophisticated technique to try to ascertain whether those deaths were avoidable or not avoidable, expected or not expected. And they determined that of the deaths, half were unexpected but related to the ED visit and 35 were thought to be the result of possible errors. That's really a small number. They said they went through those charts, and obviously it's really hard to know why people died. You know, you can't go by autopsies. Those people say you died of your heart stopped. Kind the of greatest fiction in America is the cause of death, autopsies. We frequently don't know exactly why people died, and let's just bring that to the surface. Given the fact that there is this issue, there is some take-home points that I think are worthy of pointing out. There were four themes that emerged in this review. The leading red flag was patients discharged with abnormal vital signs. And Gregory, I know that you're going to say, yeah, man. Yeah, man. Exactly right. 29 of 35 error cases, as perceived by them, had abnormal vital signs, particularly tachycardia. Particularly tachycardia. Tachycardia in adults makes you nervous. And I think it's really important to distinguish. We're not concerned about all vital signs. If a kid goes out with 103 fever who you feel comfortable is not toxic, not sick, that's okay. But if an adult's going out with a 125 pulse, you better have a real confident reason that that's occurring because that's 
substantially upset. I'd even say, Rick, that they shouldn't be going out with the balls 125. I was trying to be charitable there, Jim. Yeah, and I think that we're going to have to look at the entire situation. I wouldn't put that out as gospel that no one can ever go home. But it does raise the correct question. And this has been suggested by many people that you have two checkboxes at the end of the chart. One says, the patient is awake, alert, and was better than when they came in and can ambulate. If you can't check that one positive and you can't check the next one that says vital signs rechecked and found to be within normal limits, if you can't check both those two boxes for nursing, it has to be run through the doctor again because there's something not right. Right. Of these 29 cases of the 35, which they thought was associated with error, an explanation was rarely noted in the chart. Rechecks of vital signs were uncommon, even when abnormal. So pulse outside the range of normal substantially, I think is clearly a red flag. Obviously, blood pressure, a 50-year-old guy doesn't have a blood pressure of 98 over 6. That's something red flag. It's not always. Maybe he's a finely tuned athlete. By the way, did you know that Jim was on the Canadian, what is that swimming thing called? Water polo. Water polo. Jim was on the Canadian Olympic water polo yeah, team. Yeah, but that was in 1904. He, he has a resting pulse of 8 and a blood pressure of 15 over 7. Right, think, something you know. like that. Well, I'm a sports guy. Wait, you, bowling? Yeah. No, 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 no. The fact that I beat you at bowling, Rick, should not be brought up on this table. But I am a shot putter, and I can put down a shot faster than anyone at this table. So move ahead. Oh, geez. You want the drum roll? That, what did I, the, Boom. the rim shot there. Yeah. Number two, decompensation of a chronic medical condition was believed to be the issue in 21 of the 35 cases believed to be associated with error. They suggest that when they come in that the frame of reference on these people is not good. You don't know whether this is a deterioration and they're on a downhill slide because you're seeing it at one point in time. Failure to recognize a worsening chronic condition was thought to be the error there. Number three. Rick, Rick, you know, maybe I'm just naive, but it seems to me that although we may be very thorough, sometimes we have to involve the patient a little bit more. And it seems if Greg was coming in with a chronic condition, he's in my emergency department. One, I should be assuming that he's there because things have changed. That should be the baseline assumption. And two, I have a real simple question. So, Greg, are you worse than you were before? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, and if they can't answer, here's another part of his study that I think you have to look at. We are going to let a certain number of people go home who are going to die. I get transfers from the nursing home. We've made them comfortable. We've done what we can. And the point is they don't need to be admitted to the acute care hospital at that moment in time. Well, actually, they looked at a bunch of the people who did have cancer or were likely to be terminal. But those are expected. They're not unexpected. Right. Right. And they tended to exclude them from this category of errors or preventable. And they should. Well, I would like to challenge that, and I will in a bit. Okay. All right. The third thing was atypical presentations of unusual problems. That was 19 of the 38 patients with errors. They were talking about PE patients presenting without chest symptoms, only dizziness. Well, you know, I don't know that that was necessarily an error. AMIs presenting with posterior neck pains without chest pain or shortness of breath. Well, we know that they have all kinds of atypical presentations. You don't know that they were truly errors or not. And number four, you referred to this earlier in one of the cases that you talked about, abnormal mental status. These patients, there were 10 of 38 cases. These patients did not seem to return to the ED even though their conditions were worsened because they were intoxicated, psychotic, other kinds of reasons where they were not able to judge for themselves, I got to get back to the hospital. And your case was kind of alcoholism or drug use may have impaired their ability to notice their worsening state. You know, I think we have to be careful because when they say, you know, they didn't come back because their conditions were worsening. I have been involved in medical legal cases where the patient went to see their family doctor. The patient then came to see the emergency department. The patient saw an orthopod. 
They'd seen three physicians. Then over the next six to eight weeks, their condition kept getting worse. But they'd seen three physicians. Right. So they said, well, then I must be okay. As well, there are certain ethnic groups Mm -hmm. that you get one shot at them. They come in and the doctor says, you're okay? Yep. Yeah. You're from Canada. You have ethnic groups in Canada? Yeah. They they thought it was guys who smoke French. I mean, that's what you have, right? Okay, go ahead. They talk about these people with these neuropsychiatric problems who were discharged and died. For example, an overdose patient who was discharged and then committed suicide. There were 13 such cases and another 10 that were similar to the ERA cases, but they said since they had cancer or other terminal diseases, they didn't think it was an ERA. An ERA is an ERA is an ERA. Because the outcome was bad and they had a terminal disease, does not necessarily mean that you didn't make a mistake. Right. The fact that you have an expected death doesn't mean an error was not made. There you go. And I think that they were a little too generous with themselves in this paper in that regard. The mean age of the cases where there was a possible error was only 49, surprisingly young. And in the subset with possible errors, the most common diagnoses that they thought people missed were cardiac diagnoses like coronary artery disease, CHF, endocarditis, and cardiomyopathy. Second was CNS diagnoses. Two subdurals were missed, two intracranial hemorrhages, and one seizure was missed. And then the third category was abdominal. And then lastly, there were a few pulmonaries. I don't know that there's a ton of take-home messages in this. And frankly, I wish it was more helpful. The title is just great title, Unanticipated Deaths. Methodology, real tough to ascertain people what people really died of. They tried hard to do it. I guess the answer is be more careful. It's always like, you know, be vigilant or be aware or, or... I try to be as aware as I can with every patient. You know, be suspicious of a triple A. Yeah. I, well, I mean, what can you say? What yeah. could, you know, okay. I'm always suspicious of a triple A. I always love it when people pontificate and say, you need to keep a high clinical suspicion for. I think that the last copy of Harrison's has 3,500 diseases in it or something like that. What am I going to do? Keep a high index of suspicion for 3,500 diseases? I don't think so. But you know how you do that? And it's been shown very elegantly that once you make the diagnosis of a rare condition, you are much more likely to make the diagnosis again within the next three months. Right. I'm sure that's the case. Once you've been hyper-attuned to something, you are more likely to pick it up. There's also a downside to that. One of our doctors made the diagnosis of a benign intracranial hypertension in a young, little chubby, as you would expect, female. And this doctor orders a lot of tests in the first place. And now, God forbid, he made it this rare diagnosis. And now everybody else is getting a CT over and over and over and over again. (laughs) Well, there has to be some indications for this. If they truly had benign intracranial hypertension, you probably saw changes in the fundi and things like that. Headache. Headache. You give me something. She was in the yard. She had a headache and he made the diagnosis. And unfortunately, he made the diagnosis and now he's justified. He's justified. Okay. Do we have time for mailbag? Can I sneak in one of these last ones out of our comments? Because we talked about this before we started the tape. This is a doctor who's concerned about liability in the setting of EMS, where he is putting his name onto all kinds of licenses and certificates and clinical policies. And he's concerned about the broader implications in terms of his name's on a lot of stuff. Right. And He's worried, although I don't know whether his worry is really justified. I think it's relatively rare that there are ever cases against what they call the medical alert zone or the doctor who's head of that zone. But he works. That doctor works for somebody. He got that job from somebody. If the county wants him to serve in the role as EMS director, then they ought to extend to him coverage 
under the county's insurance policy. Mm -hmm. I think that there's no reason for him to take responsibility and have authority without liability protection, whether it's the hospital, whether it's the county, whether it's a group of counties that have come together to put this EMS system together. Somebody is in charge of this. Somebody pays the ambulance company, and whoever does probably ought to extend to him some coverage. I think it would be rare. Quite frankly, in Michigan, I think our EMS Act actually provides, at least for the online giving of information protection. Well, he's not concerned about that. He's more concerned about being offline. Offline. And in fact, he says specifically Northern Michigan, he's aware of threatened slash filed lawsuits regarding these medical control directors. Ooh, that's my own state. I'm going to have to look that up because I'm not aware of that. What I know is if you're giving advice on the radio to a unit, there is protection granted you in the EMS law in the state of Michigan. This is an interesting situation, but what I would again suggest to that listener is to make sure that somebody is covering you. Don't just do this out of the goodness of your heart because your family doesn't deserve that. Okay, mailbag time, sir. Oh, oh, we're hearing again from our good friend, Dr. Greg Moore, who's both an MD and a JD. So the three of us aren't worthy. Greg, it's good to hear from you as always. And he wants to comment on the fact that one or two tapes ago, we commented on the case or the problem of, do we ever reverse decisions based on new science? For example, let's say we discovered that the science two years ago was wrong and what the doctor did was completely correct and there was no causal relationship. What Greg says is, save your breath and your time. The court system is not going to go back to looking at these various issues, and he cynically says at the end of this, his sarcastic summary comment, the law won't allow someone's freedom to be unfairly taken away, but doesn't mind money being unfairly taken away. So if you think you want to go back after any loss that you've had, think again, it ain't going to happen. Best example of that is for years, there were cases in the United States about retrolental fibroplasia from too much oxygen being given to preemies. And then they discovered it wasn't the oxygen. It's the fact that they were premature that caused the problem. You know what? Nobody went back and gave the doctors back all and that. And said, oops, we're sorry. What? And said, oops, we're sorry. Yeah, oops, we're sorry. We'd but like to know, give you that. That raises interest. an interesting sort of associated point, Greg. And the three of us are at risk for this. You know, we present current literature. We're very much on the cutting edge of what's out there. And so we're probably ahead of the stream of what is standard of care. So what someone like I may do is I may read the most recent literature and change and modify my practice, but that's not considered standard care. Three years from now, it's adopted as standard care. I just happen to be at the cutting edge. Right. Exactly. What, what happens to that physician? Well, the problem is this. It is a continuum that moves on. What you're going to have to depend on is should there be a litigation involving what you did, that there will be other experts in the field to say, there was reasonable belief at that time. If you're the only guy in the country who believes this, Jim, no matter how good scientifically, you probably shouldn't be there and probably shouldn't be doing it. If there's a reasonable body of scientific information that says we're moving in that direction, then it's probably defensible. Well, in the course this morning, we asked the question, how many of our 110 or 20 registrants here were cooling down patients who were resuscitated from a cardiac arrest but remained unconscious? Right. American Heart Association and ILCOR, based on a couple of studies and a couple of other supportive papers, have suggested that this should be done, probably 
15% of the people raised their hand that they were doing this. So here is this gap between what is known, what is recommended, and I can tell you the 85% who were not doing it were not doing it because they reviewed the literature and independently said, no, I don't think that this is the case. They were either not aware of it or aware of it and chose not to do it. So there's this gap between what is known and what is practiced where a therapeutic modality, which is inexpensive, number needed to treat is six, the stakes are very high, we're talking about cognitive recovery here, it's the same kind of thing. Here's this gap. The community is not doing it, so doctor, what's the standard of care? The standard of care is not to do this when, in fact, we have this relatively compelling data that sees as a reasonable thing to do, virtually no downside. Yeah, the term relatively compelling data has to be put in perspective here. We have, what now, three papers that look at this seriously, and I think that none of them are large. But I agree with you, Rick. Where the standard of care is is a constantly shifting sand, and it will depend on the weight of evidence the time it takes to adopt things, nothing happens instantly. I always love this in court with it. I said, well, this article was published in the Slovakian Journal of something. You and I are probably aware of a thousandth of the medical literature which is published every month. Well, speak for yourself, doctor. Well, I understand, <laughs> Rick, but understand that we can't expect that things are going to happen that way. No, I got you. Nobody changes their practice based on one paper, pretty much. Well, I think I remember reading, Greg, that in fact, from first publication of new information to becoming a standard practice is 10 to 12 years. Right. That was the case. And in the process of that, many people can be harmed. And the primary example of that was thrombolytic therapy. Saul Sherry Temple University was able to show that urokinase was dissolving clots, took forever, forever, forever for this to be embraced by the medical community. And all these people who had heart attacks during that 10-year period never got the benefit of that therapy. Right. Exactly right. Got another letter there, Yeah, Keith? well, we're going to thank again Greg Moore for writing into us on that. And Greg, you're probably more qualified than we are to be doing this. So keep writing, and we love to hear from you. Next one is from a guy by the name of Lane Fresh. Dr. Fresh writes, I have a question that may or may not be within the scope of Risk Management Monthly, but I'll ask it anyway. With regard to asset protection, how useful are family limited partnerships? Glad you asked the question. Understand, Dr. Fresh, that there's maybe six or eight states which have limited family partnerships where you stick your assets. All I can tell you is you need to consult your own attorney in your own state about what the state recognizes as a protection device. It varies state by state what is or is not available for the plaintiff to go after. There's no question that things like a qualified pension profit sharing plans are protected from suit. The primary residence is protected in suit in virtually all states. Now in some there's a cap on that, but the state of Florida, for example, state of Texas, if you've got a $10 million house, that's your primary residence, they probably can't take it in any sort of legal action. Is that why OJ lives in Florida? That it could be the case. And I think that we would like to give you more information on this, but we're going to have to look it up and get back with you. But thanks for writing. Now we've got to say our apologies here, because we've gotten a great letter from Julian Kaddish, MD, PhD. Thanks for listening. And he said, I'm writing 
to object to a statement made in the March 9 issue of Risk Management Monthly, which casually states that the use of thrombolytics in the treatment of massive pulmonary emboli may result in chronic pulmonary hypertension. Well, you know, we had decided that we were going to answer that next month because neither you nor I want to take any credit for bringing this up Yeah, in terms of what he's concerned yeah, about. Yeah, so Julian... We think we're blaming Melvis. Yeah, yeah, we're going to blame this on Melvis, Julian. <laughs> and, and Melvis and, is going to be with us on the and, next and, tape. Right. And he better answer the yeah, question. And we're going to beat him up on the tape because I, I think never heard right. of this. Yeah. Okay. All right. Did you hear about this? No. no. no uh, it, it, don't blame me. I was just sitting there. Is somebody suggesting that I said that thrombolytics for pulmonary embolism results in chronic pulmonary hypertension? Is that what they're suggesting? If that's what they're suggesting, there's no way I said that. I'm going to go back. I'm going to pull the CD slash MP3 and see what was said. I think what we talked about was the fact that there's no evidence that thrombolytic therapy for pulmonary embolism actually results in better outcomes than things like heparin, but uh, that I'd probably do it anyway in a big PE. It producing pulmonary hypertension? I don't think so. But I'll go back. Maybe there was a misspeak there. And hey, guys, thanks for throwing me under the train. I can't wait to get at you next month, boys. All right, next. Is it wine time yet? <laughs> Uh, is it wine time? I think it's wine time. Well, man. we've got lots of more mailbags, but you know what? We're going to jump to wine time. And what I'm going to do with this wine time is, again, we've had complaints about everything. I get more comments about wine of the month than I do about <laughs> the actual law and medicine we talk about. Listen, before you do that, yeah. part of the survey that we're required to do, that we're encouraging you to fill out, it talks about comments regarding industry bias. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The, and the only comments related to industry bias is your wine recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, oh, oh. oh, Why don't you beat me up on this thing, Rick? I mean, come on. Give me a break. Speaking of wines, while you're looking that up, I can tell you that last night I had a wonderful Meursault from France by Joseph Dorin. How was it? It was amazing. 2005. It went with the crab cakes I had last night. And how much a bottle was that, if we might ask? In the restaurant? Yes. $110. Oh, my, oh my God. God. Sorry. When you're here, it's Mad Dog 2020 or it's nothing. That's it. We're not. We're <laughs> All right. Not, so not. give us that thing. We're going to talk about two Sonoma County wines. And the reason we're doing that is because next month I'm going to Sonoma to a group to work with them. Hi, guys. There's some great wines in Sonoma. And one of them is a Cabernet Sauvignon by Camon Estates. Wonderful wine. Terrific wine. 125 bucks a bottle. No, 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 that's not going to make it here. Now, I know you don't want to hear this, but Parker says for almost, you know, what is it, a tenth of that, you can get a Gallo Family Vineyards 2006 Cabernet Sauvignon from Sonoma County. And, of course, everybody says, well, Gallo, you know, that's the jug wine, that's the big wine. No, they own lots of things. They own great vineyards. And for 15 bucks a bottle, their Cabernet Sauvignon was rated an 88 on Parker's scale. Now, that's a pretty good rating. That's a great rating. And the other thing is, one, when somebody else is buying the wine, terrific. I was in Las Vegas last week, and at the table, you had some great wines. There's a Chalk Hill, and there's this and that. I mean, great stuff. The point is, if you were buying it, I'd rather have this Gallo family at 15 bucks a bottle, and it's 
in 88 in Parker's book. I like that. Well, some people don't know the difference, frankly, between the, the 88 and the 94 and the $15 and 175 Look, remember, we did champagne, I think it was two tapes ago. Bottom line is, if you put it in your mouth and you like it, it's great. then you drink it. It's great. Yeah, don't which, make it which, too complicated. Well, the reason I mentioned that is I saw a couple weeks ago a movie called Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock is this movie about true life, about this vineyard in Napa Valley. And all these vineyards put up to a blind taste test in France against the French wines with all of these judges, largely from Europe. And the white winner was American wine and the red winner was American wine as well. It's a fun movie. Get it. It's called Bottle Shock. It is available through, what's that thing you subscribe to? Netflix. 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 Yeah, very good. So, ladies and gentlemen, from New Orleans, this is Greg Henry. Rick Bucata. Jim Desarm. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye.